Episode eight ninety eight of Effectively Wild. Eight ninety eight. Eight hundred and ninety eight. In yeah. eight hundred and ninety seven in the can. Actually, eight hundred ninety eight in the can because we already pre recorded future episode. <laughs> I don't think we know about that yet. Yeah, well, it's on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com, as well as our supporters at Patreon. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben, how are you? All right. All right. I'm going to have to retcon that when we get to that future episode. This was a, a weekend with many reminders of our mortality, so I'm glad that it's time for the podcast again. It was tough for former superstars making somewhere between 20 and $25 million this season. There was... Yeah, that's, that's what we're talking about. Oh, okay. Well... <laughs> You keep taking my banter for actual topics. What's a retcon? I, I know I, I sort of know the word retcon, but I feel like I don't know it in the sense that you're using it particularly, or or maybe I don't know it at all. So can you can you tell me what retcon means? Yeah, it's short for retroactive continuity, and it means that you have to alter previously established facts in order to not screw up the continuity of a story. So you have to go back and, oh, so, and so, explain something that no longer makes sense if you were going to tell a story in a certain way. I see. So like you might have to like, so season one happens, season two happens, season three, Walt disappears for good. Right. And then season six, when you're wrapping up, you have to reference some new information from season one, two, or maybe even three to uh, explain Walt's disappearance, which you weren't at the time planning to do because you didn't know that Walt was going to decide not to be an actor anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Lost just didn't retcon a lot of things, <laughs> just kind of let them happen and never explain them. But yes, that's a good example. Okay. All right. So uh, if you want to banter about people making less than $20 million or more than $25 million, <laughs> now's your chance. No, I got nothing. All my banter was for people in that small salary bracket. So let's talk about, uh, briefly. My banter is about James Shields and okay. uh, two 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 things about James F- Shields. Um, and one is that uh, I want to talk about Fowler, Ron Fowler. Okay. The uh, you know one of the owners of the Padres, chairman or managing chairman or managing something. He's the boss. He's the big boss of the Padres. And of course, before the James Shields trade, there was the 10-run outing that James Shields had in which Fowler described it as an embarrassment to what? To the organization and to himself, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And I that's a stupid thing to say. But I was just sort of struck by how how concerned we now are uh, with like the uh, okay, how do I put this? So we used to be really into baseball, right? Like we were really into the ball players and we all wanted to be Derek Jeter. Uh-huh. And then then we grew up and we wanted to be the GM and make the moves. Yeah. And now it feels like we've gone to this point where we're really concerned with whether teams are making their players happy. And so now I feel like we sort of want to be HR. Like we've now shifted from <laughs> all the way to being HR. And we really want – like we we're really concerned with whether – the GM or the owner or the manager or whatever is making the players happy. And uh-huh. that's fine. It, I mean, it, it matters whether the player is happy. And it probably that uh, thing that Fowler said cinched 
James Shields getting traded. And so that's relevant. And so I don't have an, I'm right. As we are right now, I don't have an issue, but I see as a little bit of a slippery slope here. <laughs> do you, do yeah. you sort of, do you, does that ring true at all to you? Do you sort of feel like, get what I'm saying? Well, there's been a lot of discussion of how the player's happiness might affect his on-field performance. Yeah, that's so the uh, that's the impetus for caring about these things. It is. That's the gateway to caring about these things, and and because that is now generally accepted as a non-controversial way of thinking about things, it's hard to argue that we shouldn't take great interest in whether the um, catering is good. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that, like, it's fine where it is right now. I'm happy with baseball as it is right now. I'm happy with our conversations. But I do feel like it's possible that we're going to get to a point where it gets, we're, we're boring. We're everywhere. It's all boring. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's just that there are fewer dumb teams or fewer teams that make big mistakes that we can talk about and write angry blog posts about. And so. Now we focus on whether they're making their players happy, which seems like comparatively a, a smaller deal than teams making crazy decisions with signing players or trading for players or looking at the wrong indicators. So it seems like a less consequential matter, but maybe this is what we're left with. Yeah. The other thing about James Shields is James Shields is... You know, he's, he's a, a guy, he's, you know, we know how good James Shields is in his career. He's a 110 ERA plus guy. He's a number two starter, right? That's what he is. Yeah. And, uh, super yeah, maybe, durable. Yeah. Maybe a number three, but you bump him to number two because of uh, his durability and because for a long time you believed he was, uh, good in big games. But a good guy to have on your team. Pretty much everybody, for most of James Shields' career, pretty much every team would, would have been better with a James Shields. 110 ERA plus guy. Okay. Mm-hmm. The three years before the Royals got him, he had, well, uh, if you tailor it right, you can get 110 ERA plus in like the previous two and a half years. And then the four years since the Royals got him, 109 ERA plus. So basically, you know, over a long enough time period, it all smooths out and James Shields is James Shields. So then we have one move where the Royals get him and everybody agrees that they overpay and that it's a terrible trade that not only undervalues the things they gave up, but overvalues what James Shields is and treats him like something better than a 110 ERA plus pitcher. And then we have another signing where the Padres get him at the end of a depressed market. And everybody, I think, pretty much agreed at the time that they got a good deal, that that was a lot less than we thought James Shields was going to get at the start of the offseason. And yep. maybe it was still, uh, you know, all four-year deals for pitchers are worrisome. But, you know, clearly James Shields, he was coming off of two very good years with the Royals, MVP votes one year, Cy Young votes another year. And uh, it seemed like a no-brainer that you'd give him, what, four years in 76 or whatever he got. Yeah. So then the Royals' terrible move turns out aces because James Shields pitches really, really well. And then the Padres' James Shields move turns out to be a disaster because James Shields pitches really, really poorly. And if you look at those four years, he had a 112 ERA plus in those four years. It's just that he was awesome in two of them and terrible in two of them. And I don't have a, a, a well, I do have a point. It's a point that I make a lot often, and it is that uh, we miss on these moves by huge margins that like it is very rare that a move comes down to, you know, a half win 
here or there. Like these guys are constantly just the, you know, getting paid to be the best player in baseball and they're the worst or uh, they're being paid $5 million and then they become an MVP candidate. It's just, it puts into perspective how difficult baseball analysis is because it's not that we're always a little wrong. It's not even that we're persistently wrong in one direction. It's that we miss by miles. And uh, so that's James Shields' last four years. The dumb trade turned out awesome and the smart signing turned out a disaster. Yeah. And all along, James Shields was literally just doing his thing in in a weird order. Like his starts just happened to be ordered weird. So much has changed in the less than a year and a half since James Shields signed that contract. That was February of 2015. He signed that deal. And the Padres at the time were building up this big contender. And he was kind of one of the last pieces of the team that they put together and made their decision to try to contend more plausible at the time. And so he was obviously, you know, he got less than people thought he would get, but he still got $21 million a year for four years. And now the following season, he is traded to a division race that is very much up in the air to a team that is just a a few games behind the leader in the division and needs pitching. And you'd think, you know, if you could have, could have somehow showed people this scenario a year earlier, they would have said, wow, this is a pennant race altering move. And no one really paid that much attention to it. It's like he's a back of the rotation starter now. And this was a salary dump and fine. This is what you do if you're the White Sox, but who cares? Yeah. I mean, he's going to have a, a 110 ERA plus though. <laughs> like it should be, it is a, it is potentially a, I don't think, the, I don't think the White Sox are quite there anyway. So yeah. I don't think it's going to be enough, but who knows what else they'll do, and maybe they'll get hot, and maybe you know the right player will have a breakout. Uh, I mean, James Shields is definitely a guy that I'd be looking to add uh, if I were, um, you know, a team that was over 500 right now. So it seems like a pretty good move. Yeah, take up a home run to Bartolo Colon, though. So the other thing, the the Royals fan who's seething right now at my 110 ERA plus, you know, shruggy emoticon uh, rant a moment ago is saying, no, you idiot. It's that the Royals made him better and it's that the Padres made him worse. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, th- there you go. There's a data point. It's mm-hmm. an anecdote, but, you know, counts. <laughs> it yeah. counts as a thing. Maybe they did. Yeah. So then who knows what the White Sox will do with him. Maybe they'll make him better too. Maybe Don Cooper. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to know whether they're uh, whether they've got enough motivational speeches and whether Jeremy Guthrie's starting fires in the locker room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else about that? Nope. All right. So um, Carl Crawford. A couple years ago, I wrote a piece at Baseball Prospectus that looked at the Carl Crawford trade and specifically who was winning it on a you know day by day basis over the two years since it had happened, uh, and it hadn't quite been two years. But I uh, <laughs> I created a spreadsheet and uh, decided uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 how much the Dodgers were winning it every day uh, in the course of those two years because it was a trade that uh, really had been, I think, fairly radically reevaluated a couple of times over just those 18 months because some things had really worked out for the Dodgers because we got a better understanding of uh, the lack of payroll limitations they seem to have because Gonzalez... had a couple of phenomenal hot streaks and then a couple of really bad cold streaks because Josh Beckett and Carl Crawford were 
flipping between good health and bad health, and sometimes they were healthy and doing well, and the Dodgers were in first place, and sometimes they were injured and out for the year. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Ruby De La Rosa and Alan Webster were also going on their same journeys that we could filter all this through. And so there were times when you would say that the Dodgers had really gotten a lot out of this trade and where I assigned them a 9 on a scale of 1 to 10. And then uh, there were also times where you would say that it was a completely destructive trade that just a couple months later you could say it was a completely destructive trade that had cost the Dodgers uh, their, you know, real, uh, their, their opportunities to be a much better team and that uh, they were kind of a f- as flailing of an organization as a $270 million payroll organization could be. Uh, and they were a one they, like it would it would it actually went from nine to one in good faith. I went gave it a nine and a one within three months of each other. And um, so, as I said at the time, on August 25th, 2012, when the Dodgers took three of the Boston Red Sox biggest contracts, Ned Coletti accepted one other burden more than a half decade of second guessing. With Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford each locked up for more than five years, it would be at least that long before we'd be able to close the book on the move. For that matter, with Alan Webster and Ruby De La Rosa potentially on the cusp of long big league careers, great careers for all we knew slash know, Coletti's exposure to second guessing might run through 2020 or longer. And uh, since then, of course, Ned Coletti lost his job. This is uh, while the trade still sticks to his resume, it is somebody else's problem. But... Uh, Carl Crawford somewhat closed uh, at least uh, some portion of the book by getting himself DFA'd. And so I wanted to know uh, what you think about this trade from the Dodgers' perspective now, two years later, after I, uh, two years after I wrote that piece. Well, no one they gave up has made them feel bad about it. So that's part well, of it. Well, <laughs> De La Rosa's a solid pitcher. I mean, they could use De La Rosa right now. De La Rosa, yeah, he's solid, but it also took him, what, four years to get to solidity? Yeah. He's yeah. no longer even with the team that traded for him. He he didn't do anything with Boston. No. And both he and Webster were traded in the Wade Miley deal, so, yeah. you know, I mean. I No, I totally agree. I mean, he, uh, it's not, and it's not as though he's, uh, you know, going to finish fourth in Cy Young voting this year either. No. Uh, I mean, you could, you could probably argue that the Dodgers would have, been happy to have Carson Smith, <laughs> which is really mm-hmm. what Ruby De La Rosa had turned into. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but now they now even Carson Smith, if they had Carson Smith, that would they'd be regretful of that too. So yeah. So there's nothing they gave up other than money that uh, really makes them feel bad about making that trade, and the money probably makes them feel a little bit bad, but not that bad because they still have a ton of it. And it seems like they they never run out of it, really. Well, you know, I guess they they kind of do. They didn't sign Zach Greinke, but they still have the highest payroll, and it hasn't really affected their ability to put a pretty good team together. So, you know, Adrian Gonzalez has been good for them. Even Crawford had a couple pretty decent years for them. So it worked out kind of okay. Not not in a not in a dollars per win sense. But in the sense that they didn't really give up any great talent and they got a little bit, it's it's okay. It's certainly gotten itself out of the territory of terrible trades that will, you know, show up on the worst of all time lists. Yeah, I agree that it has gotten far beyond the worst of all time trades list. Um, no doubt about it. It it seemed 
at the time, we I don't think we really realized uh, how much flexibility the Dodgers were going to have. So it seemed like the sort of thing that could really pin down a franchise. And as I'll point out in a minute, every yeah, every dollar that you spend is a dollar you can't spend somewhere else. And so I think that you're giving them a little bit too much of a pass on that. However, it is not as though we've been watching the Dodgers the last three offseason you know, and, and saying, wow, it's just too bad they don't have any money to sign yeah. players. Like they've clearly had a lot of room to add a lot of players, a lot of to change their organization in a lot of ways, to have a lot of GMs even. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've been able to afford the GMs uh, as well. But I mean, also though, if you're not going to do the dollars per win thing, then why are we counting dollars or wins? Like you got to do the dollars per win. Don't you have to do the dollars per win? Yeah, you should. But I mean, it's it, for big teams like the Dodgers, it's it's usually less impressive than it is for smaller market teams. So for a long time, the Yankees could spend as much as they wanted. It seemed like, and yeah. and then if you ever criticized the Yankees' move, then then you'd say, well, geez, does it really matter though? Because they have unlimited money. But then you'd always remind yourself, well, they didn't get Beltron. You know, they uh-huh. didn't get, and so you just hang on to Beltron. Beltron would be your weapon or whatever, your counter-argument for everything. And so with the Dodgers, they didn't get Tanaka. They bid for Tanaka. They didn't get Tanaka. Uh, they didn't get Granky. They didn't mm-hmm. keep Granky. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of other free agents that they didn't get. So why don't we treat those guys as as law? I mean, they they have a budget, presumably. They do have a budget. Mm-hmm. So if they're spending a lot of money on Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett, and I'm not, I mean, I don't know what the dollars per win are. I'll do that in a second. But, like, clearly, if you're spending your money on lesser players, you would be able to sign better players, right? Sure. Yeah. The only reason not to look at it that way is if you think that they just wouldn't have paid more for those players anyway. Just, you know, maybe they drew a line in the sand and they looked at their projections and Andrew Friedman said, I'm not comfortable giving this much to a free agent starting pitcher or something like that. And so even if they'd had an extra, I don't know, you know, 10 or 20 or whatever million dollars on hand, they would have just saved it or used it on someone else or something. So unless it's that, unless it's like we just we don't give contracts of this amount to free agent pitchers over 31 or whatever. But otherwise, sure, you should count it. So they have uh, they have spent to date roughly 170 million dollars and gotten 17 wins, according to Baseball References model. Of course, now Carl Crawford's last the 21 million that he'll get next year, as well as the 21 million this year, are completely sunk costs. And so I have to add that. And then Adrian Gonzalez is perhaps arguably in his decline phase. And he's still owed, well, $65 million that we haven't counted. And so how many wins do you think Adrian Gonzalez is good for for the next two and a half years? Five. Okay. So, yeah, so you're looking at about 22 wins and at about the rate of 12 or $13 million a win. Yeah. Or 11, and, 11 or $12 million, maybe. Yeah, 12, about 12. About $12 million a win, which uh, pro- I think you could make the case that the Dodgers – would are a team that can afford to spend $12 million a win uh, on free agents in the right circumstances when they're, you know, depending on the needs at the time. Uh, You certainly would never say the Rays should sign a player who's going to cost $12 million a win or the Pirates. But I think the Dodgers can handle a couple spots in their roster. 
if that's the best that is available. And so then the question really is whether you're willing to say that was the best that was available. I mean, Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, and Josh Beckett is not really the foundation of a world championship team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could argue that with that amount of money, maybe you could get the foundation of a world championship team. $250 million isn't that much <laughs> either. It seems like yeah. more than it is. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I would say that I would give this right now, I would, I would say it's a three. I would rate this a three on the Dodgers winning the deal. I think that they still get the benefit of having put a good team on the field faster than they otherwise would have. Yes. And, and I think that's significant for them. They, at least, at least, whether it matters or not that they did that, at least it was identified as a priority by a front office, by the ownership. And if that's their priority, then you have to judge their actions based on whether it, um, whether it helped that. And it, it did help that. They were, they were better, faster than they otherwise would have been. And at the time, it seemed like it was getting kind of hard to, in fact, it, what, it, what, we wrote articles and stuff about it. At the time, it was harder to get good players than it had been before. And I would argue even than it is right now that we were in the extension glut and it was the new, the two wildcard era. And so there were a lot more buyers and there were only one or two teams that were really tanking aggressively. And it just felt like it was, uh, harder than it had ever really been to get, or at least in the um, free agency era, that it was harder than it had been to get good players. And yeah. uh, so they man- they did that. And so for 2013, I think that even though they ultimately didn't win the World Series or even get to the World Series, you can see where they were going with that. Yeah. And, and they wanted to send a signal that the Dodgers were spending now and that people should come play for the Dodgers and the Dodgers would pay for players there was no better way to do that than to take on this enormous load of contracts from the Red Sox. So yeah. they sent that signal very convincingly. Exactly. And then from there on, it's it's hard to play the butterfly flapping its wings game. It's hard to know how much that mattered for their next offseason, uh, whether having sort of some certainty made it easier for them to go target certain free agents, whether it was an easier sell to free agents, whether they got more revenue because they had made the playoffs. They signed their huge, huge, huge franchise-altering TV deal about five months, six months after this trade. And I don't know if it mattered at all. Like, I don't, I mean, you know, let's say it went from 6.8 billion to 7 billion. Well, that would pay for the whole thing. I don't know if that's how things work. I have no (laughs) idea, but we're talking about, now we're talking about huge numbers. Now we're talking about million with a B. Um, so it's hard to know, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, Probably the way that we tend to analyze these trades, you would say that uh, it is on the downslope, that uh, it had a moment where it looked like it might be good. I mean, there were months where Carl Crawford was good for the yeah. Dodgers. There were months mm-hmm. where you're like, wow, he's 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 back. He's back to being Carl Crawford. Uh, and then there were months also where Adrian Gonzalez was an MVP candidate. You know, Adrian Gonzalez, I, this is slightly off topic, but I want to give you a f- semi-fun fact. Uh, last year, Adrian Gonzalez started really hot, right? Yeah. And in fact, uh, he started so hot that in the first three games of the season, he uh, had five home runs and two doubles uh, and ten hits. Like that's a really good series. Uh, he ended up the uh, he ended the season with an 8.30 OPS, which is really pretty good for a uh, player in Los Angeles. If you just take away the first three games, just the first three games, if he had a flu. 
his OPS for the season drops 50 points. <laughs> 50 <laughs> points of an entire season in th- the first three games. Anyway, uh, so it, there were times where Adrian Gonzalez was an MVP candidate. And uh, so I, I think that, like I said earlier, there were times where it looked like this might actually have turned into a sneaky good trade for the Dodgers, not just by the standards that they set at the time, but by the standards that we would normally use. And I think it has completely probably fallen off of that. Not a, not a great trade and uh, also not a disaster. I think, you know, everybody probably can say, okay, we made, we made a move and uh, some good things happened from it. Some things we expected to happen from it came out of it. And uh, the enthusiasm with which we treated this trade the day that it happened, where it seemed like uh, the biggest news of the summer, uh, kind of, in a sense, a little bit of a letdown, at least from the Dodgers' perspective. From the Red Sox' perspective, they won the World Series. Yes, right. Yeah, I think that's about right. There was a feeling at the time that we might see more of this type of thing where, uh, with in the absence of good players on the free agent market, uh, we might see teams taking on a lot more bad contracts as a way of yeah. getting good players. And that never happened. No, not really. I'm surprised. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because everybody has money now. And so yeah, that could be. teams are less... Like, we thought that there were these really rich teams with these really big TV contracts that were going to be able to absorb more contracts than were actually even available to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe what actually happened is that the floor rose considerably. Yeah. Uh, And so there's fewer teams that are just, uh, you know, like basically paying down payday loans Mm -hmm. and uh, desperate to get out of some of these contracts. Or maybe it's the fact that maybe the extensions did this. Maybe with the extensions, there are fewer, more of kind of small market teams. Payrolls are tied up in these relatively friendly deals. Even when they go bad, they're relatively friendly. And mm-hmm. so you don't, you don't have examples of, you know, the, the small market teams going out and even getting into this crazy free agent market because they've invested more of their money in the extensions. So many recent trends to choose from. We can yeah. pick one out of a hat. Mm-hmm. Could. All right. Uh, I think that's all I have to say about this. you have anything to say about it? No. There's also the fact that it seems like everybody really likes Adrian Gonzalez, and uh, mm-hmm. that seems like it's been kind of a crazy clubhouse for the past few years. And I'm sure that if we had a Dodger person on here, they would say that he has brought tremendous value uh, by being a stable force and a veteran force and right. a, a multicultural force in a clubhouse that has been somewhat uh, crazy as it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other uh, between 20 and $25 million guy I was going to mention in my banter along with these other two is Ryan Howard, who had one plate appearance all weekend and had a Bud Light Lime bottle thrown at him at the conclusion of it. So he probably oh had the, the saddest weekend of all. What Was it glass? Uh, I would guess it was one of those plastic type ones that you see at the ballpark. Hmm. Was it by the home crowd? Yes. Wow. Which is not nice. It's not totally out of character with the reputation of Philadelphia Phillies fans vis-a-vis throwing items at players. But yeah, no one no one deserves to have Bud Light Lime thrown at them. Well, I hope the front office has taken steps to make Ryan Howard feel better about himself since then <laughs> it'd it be very be interesting to know hard what to they did that. to reassure him uh, while, while benching him will he be a philly on september 1st hmm 
I think he's actually been received fairly well by Phillies fans this year. Or he hasn't he hasn't habitually been thrown <laughs> Bud Light lime bottles at. Uh, he has been terrible, of course, and has now basically ceased to play. But there's uh, there's less less reason to give him the Carl Crawford treatment, I guess, given that the Dodgers just had so many outfielders and no places to put them. And I don't know that the Phillies need that roster spot right now as much as the Dodgers did. Yep. So I would guess he finishes out the season. It would be uh, just one more indignity on top of all the other indignities if they cut him this close to the end for a team that has certainly exceeded expectations but is probably not going anywhere. So I I guess he, he finishes it out. If you were a contender... And, you know, he were freely available, like you, he would cost you nothing, you would pay him nothing, and he would just be the power bench bat uh, that you would have when roster, you know, when rosters expand and maybe going into the postseason, right? When roster strain is not nearly the problem that it normally is. Uh, he, over the past, th- over the previous three years, he had a 275 true average against the right-handers. Um and this year, that has completely collapsed. He's hitting 154, 222, 338 against right-handers in 144 plate appearances. Do you think that he's even worth having as a bench bat for, like, <sighs> taking away roster crunch, taking away everything else, uh, would you want him on your bench to pinch hit and hit against righties? I think I would. I think I would. I mean, we're we're not supposed to make too much of one season of splits, right? And we're talking about 130 at-bats versus righties this year compared to probably several hundred over the last few years. So, so uh, yeah, I'd give him a shot unless, you know, unless the, the scouts look at him and say he's completely cooked mm-hmm. and you should believe the platoon splits from this season. Otherwise, the Ryan Howard of the last few years would have been a useful bench bat against righties. So... On the right roster for league minimum, sure. Yeah, here's the counter-argument. What I just told you about his 2016 splits is not really about his splits. It's about his overall performance. I mean, he's well, worse sure. against... he's been terrible against everyone. He's Yeah, he's worse against everybody. He's just a lot worse. And so it's not like, you know, it's not like all of a sudden he has a reverse split and we can just throw that out. He's just been bad. And then the multi-year splits were not exactly great. I mean, he was he's probably about... A 276 true, 275 true average is probably league average for when you have the platoon advantage. Yeah. I mean, last year, you know, that's very recent. Last year, he hit 20 home runs against righties in 367 at-bats. He did. He also had a 304 on base percentage against righties. Yeah, but he was still <laughs> worth having as a bench bat. Yeah, if you needed a home run and it was a right-hander on the mound, I'd be interesting to see. He seems like he might be the kind of guy who now is essentially, well, I don't even want to say quad A, but the kind of guy who can hit a mistake, the total speculation, just com- mm-hmm. this complete, but can hit a mistake, can hit, you know, a low velocity or, you know, a cement mixer slider. And so it could be the case that, in fact, against a right-handed closer, for instance, uh, he would be completely melted down. Yes, that's possible. So I, it'd be interesting to see how, like, what sort of split he has for... Good against good pitchers as opposed to, you know, very bad pitchers. Yes. 
I would do some research on that before acquiring him. His uh, splits against power pitchers last year uh, were not notably bad. He was fine. Uh huh. So okay. All right, that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five Patreon supporters are Grant, Jay Barnett, Jimmy Choi, Gareth Wajtunj, and Corey Rubin. Thank you. You can also buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com for more information. Father's Day is coming up soon, so if you're looking for a gift, consider buying our book. If you've read it, please leave us a review. And if you have questions about the book, please send them to us. Subject line, book club. We'll be having Theo Fightmaster, the Stompers GM, on an upcoming episode. And we'll be talking about your book questions. So send them in now. The MLB Draft is coming up on Thursday. And you can still get the Baseball Prospectus MLB Draft Guide, which was written by Christopher Crawford. It's on iTunes, so you can get it on iPhone and iPad and iPod Touch and Mac has profiles and scouting reports for all of the relevant players and tool-by-tool reports and scouting grades. So it's a good companion to keep at your side as you watch the draft results. There's a link on the BP homepage so you can access it easily that way. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash effectively wild. We'll be hitting the 4,000 member milestone at some point this week. And you can rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the play index by using the coupon code BP and you can contact us by emailing us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We'll be back with another show tomorrow.